Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues Black Table Talk Edition. I am your host, Shante Charles, and I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day. We are going to be picking up in our reading today from Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African American Marriage. And we know that there has been a lot of conversation in the uh, media space, so to speak, about uh, Kanye West. We actually did a broadcast on him yesterday. So if you are interested in listening to our thoughts on uh, Kanye West, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash daring dialogues and click on our podcast or you can check out our IG, Daring Dialogues, and see our video conversation and discussion on Kanye West from yesterday. Today, we are in Chapter 4 of Black Women, Black Love, and the topic is Black Love in Captivity. Now, I am not going to be on long today because I actually am going to be hopping over to another podcast this morning. Um, But we are going to try to get in as much reading as we can, uh, probably for the next 15 minutes. And then um, if I have someone on that wants to come in and respond to what has been shared, we will bring you on. Black Love in Captivity, Mass Incarceration and the Depletion of the African American Marriage Market. No other institution has perfected America's project of forbidding black love better than the contemporary prison industrial complex, also known as PIC or PIC. Racial enslavement, racial terrorism, and welfare each possessed a particular capitalist mood, and each applied its own bitter coating to the pill of forbidding black love. The prison industrial complex, however, is a mechanism of subjugation that impedes black love and marriage with unmatched methodical precision. Extending and exaggerating the capitalist moods of previous eras since the 1980s, the PIC has produced a, con- a conquered army of black male criminals, criminals to generate billions of dollars in revenue. Give me one moment. All right. And again, as I said, I won't be reading uh, long today, but I will give space for a response if you would like to respond. Black men are incarcerated at much higher rates than any other group in the United States, even when convicted for the same crimes. Today, this contingent of more than 500,000 outnumbers incarcerated black women by nearly 490,000. Although the percentage of black women coming under the surveillance of correctional facilities is increasing daily, the Bureau of Justice predicts that one in 16 black women will experience imprisonment in their lifetime compared to one in 111 white women. One in three black men can expect to be imprisoned at some point in their lives. And while the erroneous statistic that more black men are incarcerated than in college has been thoroughly debunked, there are in fact more black men in college, the chilling report that more black men were under correctional control in 2013, 1.88 million, than were enslaved in 1850, 
872,924, is enough to deflate any sense that the nation is turning a progressive corner. Through statistics like these, researchers have sought to calculate the devastating cost of the nation's mass incarceration crisis to black communities and the American society in general. With attention focused on a range of public safety and public health concerns, both real and manufactured, articles have appeared in rapid succession attempting to distill the causes and effects of the staggering rates of black male incarceration in America. Even after Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow book, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, enough can never be said about the impact of mass incarceration upon black individuals, families and communities, mental and physical health, gainful employment, housing opportunities and educational trajectories. Embedded within this constellation of social concerns is the relationship between mass incarceration and black love and marriage. Demographers have attempted to put this relationship into perspective for our current moment. However, estimates vary based on the different approaches they take to the census population data. Some determine, quote, for every 100 black women not in jail, there are only 83 black men. Others maintain that after adjusting for the fact that unincarcerated black men have been repeatedly undercounted in the census, there are approximately 100 unprisoned black women to 91 unimprisoned black men. Among the missing black men, those in prison have had no choice but to make new homes out of the small cages holding them captive. If we trace the paths connecting inmates with their domestic neighborhoods across America, some of the most traveled roads would be between the cells of black male inmates and the residences of black women and children. As the phenomenon of mass incarceration unfolded during the 1980s and 1990s, Mark Maurer aptly called it a race to incarcerate. During this period, black people, particularly black men and adolescents, were also, for all intents and purposes, the race to incarcerate. This is why author Michelle Alexander actually defines mass incarceration as a racial caste system, quote, designed to warehouse a population deemed disposable, unnecessary to the functioning of a new global economy, or as I would say, not necessarily unnecessary, but being used as enslaved persons under the penile system um, to do slave labor, because a lot of these major companies hire prison labor. So they are still being used under a new global economy they're just being used as enslaved persons. When we add the numbers of black males locked away in jail cells to those serving prison sentences, our nation's carceral facilities actually house nearly one million black men today. One African-American male inmate personalized his experience of this mass incarceration, calling his prison cage home for a while, whether we like it or not. This is home for a while. This is home for a while. America's prison cells have actually become home for a long while to hundreds of thousands of black men since the Reagan administration's war on drugs put into effect criminal justice policies that sent disproportionate numbers of black men to prison with felony records beginning in the 1980s. Now, we do know that President Biden has said something about um, the number of um, nonviolent drug offenses 
um, that they're looking into in terms of pardoning men and how how many people that would actually affect. But we'll see if that comes to fruition. In some cities across this nation, up to 80% of black men were being incarcerated on drug crimes by the late 1990s. In fact, America's penal response to public health problems and transgenerational structural oppression, mental illness, drug addiction, joblessness, poverty, would elevate the overall national rate of incarceration in record time. By the late 1990s, one out of every four, every 34 adults, one out of every 34 adults was either imprisoned, on parole, or on probation, and black men were grossly overrepresented among these figures relative to their population size. In 1980, 143,000 black men were incarcerated. By 2008, that number climbed to 846,000. How did mass incarceration close in so quickly? Under a Republican administration, the political and economic climate of the mid-1980s allowed a vast web of institutions to consolidate its powers and engineer the mass incarceration of Black men in America. And this network extends beyond the cooperating units of the criminal justice system. The corporatization of incarceration, the rolling back of citizens' rights regarding police searches and seizure of property in circuit courts, and the Supreme Court, the culture of corruption contributing to the over-policing of black communities, the criminalization of poor black people, and police preying upon poor black residents as a source of revenue, and to attract federal grants, the prosecutorial process of plea deals, and coerced confessions that often led to the ethically, if even legal, wrongful conviction of poor black people for crimes they did not commit and the private industry lobbyists and campaign contributors representing companies that profit into the millions from expanding the prisons. These have been among some of the most predatory means of placing black men under correctional control in America over the past 35 years. Complementing funding and rewarding these strategies was the 1994 Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, especially known for its, quote, three-strike statute that has made prison home forever for thousands of Black men. A U.S. Department of Justice fact sheet summarizes the parameters of the three-strikes provision as mandatory life imprisonment without possibility of parole for federal offenders with three or more convictions for serious violent felonies or drug trafficking crimes. The federal government's three-strike statute, however, appeared in the wake of Washington State's 1993 enactment of the first three-strikes law. By 1995, nearly half of the nation's state legislators had followed suit, although with some variation in how conceived and enforced the statute. In 1995, I was graduating from high school, and I remember the three-strikes rule very, very vividly as I saw black men disappearing from my neighborhood. But if some black men will die in prison as a result of the three strikes legislation, what are the odds of the thousands who must make America's prisons their home for a while, returning to productive lives upon release from their iron cages? For those navigating the world with felony records, 
Their chances for successful reunification with spouses, family members, obtaining adequate housing and gainful employment, and participating in civic duties such as voting and serving on juries are grim. Long after exiting the criminal justice system, ex-felons struggle to recover from the shattering effects of perpetual social and economic exclusion. Michelle Alexander, in fact, calls the felony record a badge of inferiority that relegates people for their entire lives to a second-class status. After a decade and a half of federal, state, and private entities' efforts to get tough on crime and deter recidivism, the Obama administration took some measures to ameliorate punitive federal housing policies and tamper the, pred and tamper the predatory environment that fed the prison industrial complex. Beside the president signing into law the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act, reducing the sentencing disparity between convictions related to crack and powder cocaine, the Justice Department also launched a Smart on Crime initiative in 2013. This legislation sought to bring about equal sentencing for use of cocaine, no matter how it was distributed to the body. Among the initiative's aims was the promotion of fairer enforcement of the laws, the alleviation of the disparate impacts of the criminal justice system, and the strengthening of protections for vulnerable populations. Publicly acknowledging the crime justice system as skewed by race and by wealth, a source of inequity that has rippled effects on families and on communities and ultimately on our nation. Obama became the first sitting president to actually tour a federal prison in 2015. Under his clemency initiative, Obama also began commuting prisoner sentences. While prison reform activists legitimately grumble over the number of petitions Obama denied or left unaddressed by the end of his term, America's 44th president actually commuted the sentences of more inmates than his 12 predecessors combined. In addition to the 1,715 sentences he commuted, Obama pardoned more than 200 nonviolent inmates, most of whom were serving sentences for drug-related crimes. His 2016 Ban the Box rule also prohibited federal government employers from asking applicants to disclose whether they have criminal records. Within a year, nearly 30 states have begun to implement Ban the Box policies. Now, I will tell you in my profession as an educator, that box is still on your applications. <laughs> so there are still some professions that still have that box. Um, these kinds of policies can potentially diminish racial disparities in employment since criminal records reduce the likelihood of employment by half for whites and by two thirds for blacks. Surprisingly, the shift toward prison reform did not entirely halt with the end of the Obama administration. Despite the vitriolic tough on criminals rhetoric, Donald Trump and his surrogate spewed during the 2016 election season and after two years into his presidential experiment, Trump signed a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill. The First Step Act affords federal prisoners additional pathways to clemency, including the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act, which now can be applied retroactively for the first time since it was put into effect. Many agree that the First Step Act is the most powerful and sweeping criminal justice reform legislation in the area of mass incarceration. Now, I personally um, have a family member as well as um, a family acquaintance 
that both worked and lobbied um, in the D.C. area to get the First Step Act passed. Uh, one worked in law enforcement himself and the other um, was a formerly incarcerated man who was in prison for life, but he was able to get out through lots of <laughs> acts of miracles. Um, but both of them were on two different sides of the aisle helping to um, push the First Step Act along with many others. Since 2016, new DAs across the nation have been pledging to implement equitable and compassionate prosecutorial practices premised on justice rather than a blind obsession with conviction at any cost. Many of these DAs provide support for one another through networks and forums where they gather to share resources and discuss operable reform strategies. So I'm going to stop there for today. And again, she opens up this chapter talking about the crime bills, talking about the race to incarcerate, talking about because of these policies, the number of black men that were held in incarceration began to skyrocket, making the African-American marriage market depleted. Thoughts, thoughts on it. Oh, thoughts. I'm going to open it up a little bit today. Uh, we've probably got about 10 minutes for some conversation. So I am going to grab Pastor Ben and see if I can bring him in and see if he has any thoughts on the matter. says adding so hopefully it will be able to add you good morning good morning <laughs> this, this is an old discussion mm -hmm. we're incarcerated much more than everybody else mm -hmm. and actually for actually for less crimes yeah because when you when we go when we check through history a lot of uh, actually, history and history lets us know that a lot of things that we were convicted of, we didn't even commit the crimes. Mm -hmm. You know, so even today, it's still still going on. They're still finding out where police chiefs or whatever, uh, uh, police officers made a bunch of arrests on trumped up charges, and people are doing time for them. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of the two I'm trying to think of the two um, organizations that help with freeing men. I, I I post about them all the time on my page, but the names of them are not coming to my mind at this moment. Um, but but their sole purpose is um, dealing with the legal fees of of people having to fight in a fight appeals to in order to prove their innocence um that i think it was uh the innocence project is one i want to say that's what it is the innocence project and then there's another organization 
that um that helps people who are trying to prove their innocence for life sentencing to be able to afford the you know the attorney costs and all of that but yes you are right to this day people are still being released from unjust sentences from sentences they never should have been serving and we're talking like 20 30 40 years for a print a, a sentence they never should have served and you know i will i will say not in this context uh context but i will say i have had a relative that was serving a life sentence and i remember when he went away i was a teenager and now here i am in my 40s and he finally was released but because he did not have enough supports in place i believe as he left he found himself going right back in now it's not a life sentence but i did i did write to him and i said you know this is heartbreaking for our family because we spent years walking you through a process holding on to hope sending money taking phone calls writing letters putting money on your commissary all of that so this is a subject that I'm not I'm sure I'm not the only person in America that has somebody that's you know a family member that's incarcerated but after almost 30 years he was finally released from his sentence but when they released when they released him when they released him he had no money no housing He went back to his father's house and less than, had to be a less than six months. He had done something to get himself arrested and put back into incarceration. So what does that tell me? That tells me that the incarceration system is not a rehabilitative one. All right. It's not. It's not. I have a brother, my older brother. He was arrested for, de- for defending himself against against three white boys. They jumped him. He beat him down. But he was arrested. See now, of course, we're going back to like the early seventies, you know. Mm-hmm. But still, that stuff still happens today. <clears throat> you know. Yeah. So, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. America needs to do better, but America doesn't want to do better. Yeah. If they did, they would. Yeah, so I am, you know, this subject hits home for me because, you know, I told him, I said, every everyone has pretty much tried to do what we could with what we had as a family. But it, but it doesn't help, you know, to see him back in the same state. And I think he's, he's going to be in there for another six to 13 years at this point. Well, what happens, 
when you taking somebody, how, how, how old was he when he went in originally? Early 20s. Probably 21, okay. 22, somewhere in there. Right. And he did how much time before he was released? Almost 30 years. Okay. So he's he has spent more time in than he had out. Correct. So now he's used to that. He don't know what to do outside now. Correct. Which, as you said, there's no rehabilitation. He's not prepared for what's, what to expect once he comes out. You just released him. He comes out. And things have changed so much, uh, things are so different that he don't know how to deal with it. Correct. So he feel like the safest place for him mm -hmm. is back in there. Yeah, and I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I was going to get to that point. But when I wrote him and I said, you know, this is heartbreaking. You know, what? what is it that we can do at this point? And he said to me in his letter, you know, that being out being outside being free almost terrified him uh -huh. it was terrifying because almost 30 years you've been told when to go to bed when to eat when to shower when to do whatever <laughs> and those and those that voice is not there that routine is not there so it's like, if you are releasing people, why aren't y'all spending, if you know they're set for a release, why aren't y'all spending at least the last six months of their time or even the last year of their time dealing with life skills for the outside? Like, Listen, they used to have what we call halfway houses where when it was being released, there was this they would, act, they would actually be real apartments and stuff mm -hmm. that they would live in. But before they even went that far, what they would do is they would release them for work. Mm -hmm. You know, you might be gone a week, you got to come back in for the weekend. Or vice versa, you in for the week, you go out for the weekend. Mm -hmm. Then you go to a, a, a halfway house, which is basically like a rehabilitation program, where you and other uh, release people, mm -hmm. they go and they live in these complexes. You know, and you got your caseworkers and everything coming by, checking on you, and you know things like that. Yeah, he um, never he never talked about any of that as being his process. I think he said he had work release at one point, but I don't know how far that was outside of his release date time. But I was saddened because I'm like, listen, we invested a lot of time and you know if you think about families i'm like i know i'm not the only one feeling this way we've invested lots of time lots of resources and hoping that you get out and then when you do here we are again so it's like starting the grief process all over again and for me you know as a relative it's like i never got to know you as a person right. this whole time like I got my memories of you in childhood and then my memories of you through writing and then you know he was out in enough time to attend a funeral so I got a chance to see him and hug him and you know rejoice with him being in you know freed but then three months later I find out you're back in for six to 13 years. So 
we don't often talk about those kinds of disruptions that happen to family. Like complete disconnection from family and what's happening and how that affects everybody that's connected to you. Okay, so now we're going back to disruption of the black family. Yep. Yeah. So he does have he does have a son. Um, and I know that I, I'm not sure what their relationship is like, but he does. I know he does have one son. Um, but again, because of disconnection, I've never met that son. And that's a that's a cousin. He's grown. He's a grown. He's a grown man. Probably has children or two, or a wife, and I no connection. Because he's been with his mother, and we haven't had any information on the mother. So again, it's not just that immediate family disruption that happens, but it's everything else that happens along with that. Final thoughts, Pastor Ben? Uh, I already said, America has to do better. Okay, have to do better. But America has to want to be born. Yeah. What is that going to take? That's the question. I think what it might take might be, um, I don't even want to say, I don't even want to say the W word. Because I don't even think that's going to help us do better. I think that would just deplete the the country of more men. I don't know that, I don't think that would be helpful. But, um, yeah. Thank you for having this conversation with me. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogue's Black Table Talk Edition. And I've been your host today, Shantae Charles. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. It is. It is. It is. So go out and be what, Pastor Ben? Light. Be light. And if I could say anything to my black brothers, please do all that you can. Do all that is within your capability and power to stay out of the prison industrial complex. We know that there are booby traps everywhere, literally, in this country. We know. But as much as lies within you, try not to be uh, try not to make yourself available for the booby trapping that happens. Thank you all for your time and attention. Take care and God bless.